This is an exciting day. For the past several weeks, for those who have been with us, we've been going through the book of Titus. They've been filled really with hard-hitting exhortations regarding how we should live in light of the gospel. We've addressed men, we've addressed women, young and old both. Well, today we've come to the theological underpinnings, the foundation of all these appeals that we've been talking about the last several weeks. We have come to the key verse, our memorization verse of the book of Titus. By way of analogy, this past month we've been told you how to drive. We told you how to navigate the roads of South Florida, i.e. modern-day Crete. We told you, don't drink and drive, be sober, all right? Exercise self-control, persevere, respect authority, and many other commands. We've given you a map, a road map, places to go, where not to go on this road to holiness. Well, today, my friends, we are equipping you with a vehicle to get there on the road to holiness, to godly living, all right? This vehicle is none other than the grace of God. It's the grace of God and the grace of God alone that will allow us to fulfill all the appeals that have proceeded in this wonderful letter of Titus. So fasten your seatbelts and let's begin. And let's do so by opening up the Word of God to Titus chapter 2, our memory verse, starting with verse 11. You got it? Let us begin. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. Yes, a people. Purify a people who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with authority. Let no one disregard you. Let us pray. O oh, Savior, grace of God, we ask this morning that you would speak, that you would instruct, that you would train, that you would discipline us this morning. O oh, Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. May we this morning taste and see that you are good. Holy Spirit, would you fill us this morning, empowering us to live the godly lives that you commanded us to live a radical life, to lead a life that is zealous for good works and zealous for you, our great God. Oh, Father, this is a prayer that we believe that you want to answer this morning. So we pray it in faith to you. Amen. Amen. We'll learn to live godly lives by the grace of God. That is where we're going this morning. The grace of God, number one, saves us. And the grace of God, number two, who sanctifies us, starting with the first point, the God who saves us. Verse 11, we begin with the word for. For, this is the reason what we can obey. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. In this church, if you've been around here for a while, it is easy, isn't it, to get comfortable, familiar with phrases like the grace of God. 
by the grace of God. Oh, there's grace. Yes, there is. But at times, I fear that word, the grace of God, that the veil's been torn in two or something like that. I don't know. All right. The Holy of Holies here, okay? Oh, my. So we would have understanding and application of the grace of God this morning. That the grace of God would sparkle. That the grace of God would rest more heavily on our tongues and hearts. That the grace of God would truly be glorious. That is where we are going this morning. You see, as we learn in verse 11, the grace of God is more than a doctrine. The grace of God is a person, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace of God has come in space and time, in flesh and blood, and his name is Jesus. Grace isn't just a concept or an idea. The grace of God is a historical reality. The grace of God is not just some impersonal force that moves us in life. Grace is a real person. Grace isn't the product of reason. It's the fruit of a relationship. Grace is not what we deserve. Grace is what God has decreed. You may say, well, thank you, but what's the big deal about grace? Why do I mention this here? You see, we cannot and must not talk about the grace of God or assume that we're knowing what we're talking about when we say grace of God. We cannot separate the grace of God from Jesus Christ. The grace of God and our Savior are inseparable. But here's my fear this morning. I'll get it to you out front. There are some people here in a crowd this size that have not experienced the grace of God that have not experienced the saving work of Jesus Christ, who have not experienced his sanctifying power to change us. Those whose penalty for sin still remains upon them. I, if you're in that situation this morning, I am glad you're here. But I don't want to mislead you either. You see, it's only through being reconciled to Jesus Christ, to be united with him, that we can talk this morning about killing sin, that we can talk about changing, doing those things that you really don't want to do in the bottom of your heart, but you do anyway. The very things that you know are eating away your soul. If you have not received salvation this morning, to talk about living a godly life would be a cruel joke. It would be a futile exercise. You can't do it. It would be disingenuous for me to say that you could, for me to offer you hope this morning apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. It would be like giving you a fire hose with no water source and telling you to put out the raging forest fires in your own life. It would be like giving you a car without brakes and assuring you that you would be safe. You would not. To think that you can live a righteous and morally acceptable life before God apart from Jesus Christ will only serve to delude you, harden you, and eventually destroy you. But here's the good news. Please hear the good news as well this morning. It is found in this very first verse, chapter, verse 11, chapter 2. Christ has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What does it mean, all people? 
I believe in this text, it means all the classes of people that Paul has been referring to in this letter. Male, female, young, old, slave, and free. I think that includes everyone here, does it not? God, the grace of God has come to bring salvation. How? By sending his son to die on the cross in our place. We also read in this verse 14 that he came to give himself for you, i.e. to be a substitute, to bear the penalty that your sin deserves, the very wrath of God, and to bear that penalty in your place. That's the grace of God. He has come to bring salvation. And we're to respond by trusting in his sacrifice and repenting and turning from our sins. Jesus Christ is your salvation. Jesus Christ is my salvation. Jesus Christ is the only basis for our hope this morning that we can change and grow in godliness and grace. This process of growth is called sanctification. Our growing and becoming more like Christ is called progressive sanctification. You see, our salvation secures our sanctification. They go together. Salvation secures our sanctification. With salvation, there is sanctification and growth. Without salvation, there is no sanctification. In your notes from John Owen, says it well, there is no death of sin without the death of Christ. We read as such in Romans 6, verses 10 and 11, for the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The grace of God that brings salvation is the very same grace that trains us to live a godly life. The grace of God that pardons our sins is the grace that purifies us. Is that good news? That is good news this morning. You see, sanctification isn't extra credit Christianity. No, it is the Christian life. And God, oh, I know this, is committed to your sanctification and mine. There's a lot of things I don't know regarding what God is committed to, okay? I don't know if God is committed to me living to age 80 or living a cancer-free life. I don't know if God is committed to having the Miami Dolphins go to the playoffs this year or for the Florida Gators to win another national championship. Al may think that, okay? You can't believe everything a preacher says, okay? At least regarding football. Just let you know that ahead of time. I don't know if God is committed to sparing those on the island of Jamaica. Oh, we can pray that. What a worthy prayer. I don't know if God is committed to sparing us from Hurricane Dean or any other hurricane. I don't know if God is committed to have me be a pastor the rest of my life. I hope so. But this I know, that God is is committed to your sanctification. Why? Because he saved you. Salvation leads to sanctification. This I know. Point two, the grace of God sanctifies us. And this is the crux of our message this morning. Verse 12 of Titus 2. This grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God is training us. He's training you. He's training me. 
this term in the original language is not so much of a coach who is training you or even a teacher who is training you, as if God is merely some strength coach. You know, do a few more reps. You can do it. Suck it up. No, no. Oh, it's that, but it's much more. Much more than just a teacher who is formally giving instruction to his pupils. No, the term used for train is much more intimate and all-encompassing. It relates to a father as to his son. A father who trains his son. You see, the Greek used the term here for training. They use it to mean rearing, disciplining, meaning to shape the lives of their children so that they would grow up to be fruitful citizens, law-abiding citizens. Well, the grace of God is training us to live godly, fruitful lives for the kingdom of God. And he does so as a father to his son. I can only imagine what it would be like to come home one day from a hard day's work, sit down at the table for a meal, and realize my children were not there, only to be found down the street in one of my neighbor's garbage cans, scavenging for stale bread, rotting meat, and whatever they can consume. That is what we do when we sin against our God and Father. We settle for the scraps of this world as opposed to God's provision in Christ Jesus. What would I do if I learned that my children were doing this each day? First of all, I would be concerned. I eat for the health, also for my own reputation as well in the neighborhood, okay? I would take them aside. I'd say, children, do you understand that you are my child? You're my son. You're my daughter. You're part of this family. This meal, this provision is for you. I have worked so I can put food on the table for you. This is yours. This is grace. And then I would spank their hiney as well, okay? (laughs) For their unbelief and their wanton indulgence, okay? Well, that is what I think God has for us here in this passage when he says the grace of God trains us. He trains us as a father, reminding us of his provision on the cross for us and reminding us also of the glorious wedding feast to come upon his return. And he chastens us for our unbelief. All this is part of this rich word, train. God's grace trains us. So firstly, we can say no to sin. And secondly, so we have a desire not to sin. Let's look at the first of those. And point B, so we can say no to sin. Titus 2.14 says this, who gave himself, the Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. This is the reason we can say no to ungodliness and worldly passion and yes to godly living. When Christ gave himself for us on the cross, i.e. salvation, he redeemed us from every, every lawless deed, from every act of disobedience, from every sin. I think one of the strategies of the flesh, one of the strategies of Satan, is for us to think generally about our sin. Yeah, he forgave us of our sins. I know, I'm, I'm prideful. Yeah, thank God he saved us. Oh, I think we have to go deeper, more specific, and do the hard work of application. He died for every sin. 
What is that sin that plagues you? Perhaps for years now, you've been trying to successfully mortify or kill that sin. He died for that sin. Yes, all sins, but for that sin. That sin perhaps that has defined you in the past, or perhaps still does. Those constitutional sins, as we say. Well, what are they? What comes to mind right now in your mind? Men, is it lust? Pornography, procrastination, selfish ambition, vain conceit, covetousness, greed, lack of self-control. Woman, is it bitterness, contempt for authority, or lack of submissiveness, starting with your own husband? Is it love of ease, unrighteous anger, unbelief? Anxiety. You got it? Get one in your head right now, okay? If you don't have any, you can always start with lack of self-control, which is the first here listed in our passage. I want us to read verse 14 again. And in your mind, silently, I want you to fill in the blank with that very sin. Right? The grace of God who gave himself for us to redeem us from. Put that sin right there. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you believe it? (laughs) That's the question, is it? Do you believe it? Oh, this grace is to be entered into by faith. And this grace, it's for here and now. What does it say in the text? It's for this present age. My friends, we're talking about present grace. I'm not just talking about future grace when we get to heaven. You can experience the grace of God right now in the very sins that have plagued you. God has redeemed you from every every lawless deed. Do you believe it? That's the Christian life. That's sanctification. That is standing by faith in the grace of God. Oh, I want to believe it. I want you to believe it in your life to say so. To grow in grace, to be trained by grace, is to be influenced, to be shaped, to be instructed by this truth that Christ has secured our sanctification. This doesn't mean we don't have to work. Oh, we still have to work at it, don't we? We are declared holy, but yet we are being made holy, all right? We must learn to live godly lives, and this takes work. But our confidence isn't in our ability. Our confidence is not in our work. It's God's work in us. John Murray puts it this way. God works in us, and we also work. But the relationship in sanctification is that because God works, we work. Because God works, we work. Because God works, we can grow in godliness. We can grow in putting to death the deeds of the flesh. There is hope. Do we believe it? Does your life display the grace of God? Here's a question for you this morning. Are you going to build your life around what you feel, or what is real? The question comes from C.J. Mahaney in his excellent book, The Cross, Living the Cross in Our Life. Are you going to build your life on what you feel or what is real? What is real is that Christ has appeared and brought salvation. Through his death on the cross, he has set me free from the press of this world. What is real is that Christ will appear again to fulfill every promise that he has made. 
that Christ will return again and save his own and condemn and judge those who are not his own. What is not real as a believer, as a Christian, is that your situation or your sin is hopeless. That there is no recourse. There is no victory. That is not real in Christ Jesus. Or that your flesh is somehow too powerful or Satan somehow too cunning. No, that is not real. You may feel that, but that is not real in Christ Jesus. The psalmist understood this tension well between what we feel and what is real. And he also knew how to fight it. Listen to these words. Psalm 42, verse 5. The psalmist says this. He is talking to himself. He is talking to his soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. I love the Martin Lloyd-Jones comment on this verse when he says this. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Every morning I wake up, I talk to myself. From the beginning, from the moment that alarm goes off. Why? Because I lay down at night, the flesh is talking to me. Oh, when I wake up, the flesh is right there talking to me. He says a variety of different things, but usually it's around this nature. Hey, Corey, oh, bro, it's early, man. Take it easy. You deserve a little rest today. Just lie down a little longer and daydream with me, won't you? Don't daydream, okay? (laughs) With the flesh. No. I must wake up from the moment I rise and be talking truth to my flesh. Perhaps it's not in the morning for you. Perhaps you're feeling to get the best of you when you step into that office on a Monday morning. Perhaps when you step in that office and you have 120 emails in your inbox or you have a boss who is breathing down your neck. For those who are moms, perhaps it's about 5 o'clock in the evening. Dinner's not made. The house is a mess. The children are hanging from the light fixtures. And daddy's coming home in a few minutes. How do you feel then? Oh, it's easy to live by what you feel at that time as opposed to what is real. But how about when things are going great? I've worked a hard day. Come on home. Things are going well. Do you just let your feelings party? You know, just kind of throw self-control out the window. After all, I deserve it. I've been a good boy and good girl. Do you live by what you feel or do you live by what is real? Are you listening to yourself at those times or are you primarily speaking to yourself, speaking the truth and word of God? Do you even know what is real? My first goal each day in the words of George Mueller, I believe it's George Mueller who said this, is to make my soul happy in the Lord. Oh, to set aside time to marinate in God's word. It's hard to marinate. You know what I want to do? Get a salt and pepper shaker out, just dab a little salt and pepper and go on my way. No, we must be marinating ourselves in God's word, 
renewing our minds, that we'd be transformed into his image by the grace of God. Taking time for prayer, taking time to read and study scripture, taking time to memorize scripture, like Titus 2, 11 through 14. By taking an early morning walk, whatever it means for you to marinate yourself in God's word, to be transformed, to speak truth to your flesh when it is crying out to you. We must let truth determine or fuel our feelings rather than our feelings determine what is true. We must not let our feelings determine what is true. But let me say this as well. There is a place for feelings. They do have their place. My friends, let us make feelings our ally in this battle against sin, not our enemy. In the long run, you and I will not be successful mortifying sin if we don't replace our passion for this world with a greater passion for Christ and his glory. It will not happen. To borrow an analogy from the author Jerry Bridges, if we are going to cut out sin in our life, if we are truly going to live the godly lives that are spoken about in this passage in Scripture, we must have both blades of the scissors. A single-bladed scissor is useless. We must have both blades to cut out sin. What are those two blades? The one blade is the ability to renounce sin. My friends, that is not enough, though. We must have the desire to renounce sin. It's those two blades working together. We can then mortify, kill the sin in our lives. You see, to be able to say no to sin will not work if you have no desire to fight sin. It would be like driving a car that has brakes but has no accelerator pedal. You're not going to go anywhere. But conversely, to want to say no to sin, but yet not to be able to do so, is also useless. It is like driving in a car with an accelerator pedal, but no brakes. You may be going somewhere, but you're going in the wrong direction. Eventually, you're going to crash. We must have both the ability and the desire. That is the grace of God as seen in Christ Jesus. Not only does God train us to say no to sin, but he changes our very desires and replaces it with desires for righteousness, for glory, for his glory. It is to be compelled by someone greater than the attraction of our sin. So we, yes, are able by the grace of God to say no to sin, but in note C, we also must want to say no to sin and yes to him. That's where the desire comes in. Titus 2.14, second portion of that scripture says this. It's about the grace of God, Jesus Christ, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Literally, that phrase means a zealot for good works. Who's a zealot? A zealot is a person who's consumed with passion, passionate pursuit of an object. Are you a zealot for Christ? Are you a zealot for good works? 
God is purifying a people for himself, a church who would be zealous for good works. That word zealous, I love it. It's radical. But you know what? That's the Christian life. That is a product of the grace of God, that we would be zealous for good works. It's why Christ has redeemed us. It's why Christ has brought salvation in verse 11. We're going to be asking the question this morning, well, how do I get that passion? As I mentioned, the Christian life is more than just saying no to every sin that rears its ugly head. We don't get such passion by having a bunker or defensive mentality. Hey, just lay low, say no to sin, and you'll be okay. We don't give thereby such a defensive life. No, the Christian life is more than hitting the brakes on our car every few feet and closing your eyes at every immodest billboard that is along the highway of life. That's not the Christian life. That is driving on the Palmetto Freeway, okay? But that is not the Christian life as God designed it. No, it's much more than that. The passionate Christian life is not closing our eyes continually. Oh, that may be appropriate at times, man, okay? No, but it's more than that. It's actually living with our eyes wide open, our eyes fixed on the glory of God, our eyes fixed on our treasure. And that reorients all our passions and is our tool, is our weapon in the fight against sin. Listen to this. For the grace of God has appeared. There's the eyes. See, it's about looking back at the cross of Christ. The grace of God has appeared. Space and time, historical reality. Christ died for our sins. It is eyes wide open, looking back to what God accomplished for us at the cross. But it's also looking forward. What does it say in our scripture? Waiting for the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of Jesus Christ. It is looking back at Calvary. It's looking with eyes wide open in anticipation of Christ's return. It is about being captivated by the beauty of Christ. There's the eyes again. So that we will no longer desire to sin or settle for anything less. Verse 13 says it this way. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, if you're like me, you need a Copernican-like revolution every day, okay? What I mean by that is, I'm not saying you need to rediscover that the sun is the center of our solar system. No, we need to rediscover daily that God is the center of the universe and not me and not you. I need that continually. Oh, that we would stop suppressing his glory and exchanging the truth for a lie. That we would worship the creator rather than the creation. I need that revolution in my life every day as I think in my delusion that I am the center of the universe. Oh, my friends, let's go back to the question again. So how do we get this kind of passion? We get it by seeing. By seeing how? With the eyes of the heart. And seeing scripturally often comes from hearing. Hearing the word of God that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened and open to his beauty and to his majesty. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the world becomes empty, pale, and poor in comparison. My friends, do you have eyes to see? 
in the words of Jonathan Edwards, grace is but glory begun, and glory is but grace perfected. God's grace is intended to whet our appetite for grace perfected, which is the glory of Jesus Christ. To be trained as grace, to be trained in grace, is to taste and to see that the Lord is good and to want more and more and more of him. That's the Christian life. That is being trained in the grace of God. Well, if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, you are a believer. God is committed to your sanctification and God is changing you. It's not necessarily overnight. At times, it may be slower than you would wish it. But God is committed to changing you, conforming you into his image. With that thought, I want to draw to an end here shortly with a quote from John Enzor's excellent book. It's called The Great Work of the Gospel. I haven't encountered a finer book in terms of helping me to live out the gospel life. What is the outworking of the gospel? And he has an excellent chapter called Living Under the Influence of Grace. And he speaks about God putting these desires, changing our desires to be more like him, and how it often works in our life. And he uses this analogy. We find an analogy to the steady force of God's grace in the autumn leaves. What makes them cling so tightly throughout the summer? in spite of all the storms that blow through, and then let go on a still autumn day and fall like colored snowflakes? The answer is that underneath the base of the stem, a new bud is forming, pushing, nudging, and eventually unhinging the old leaf. We do not see the evidence of this until six months later, when it swells and bursts forth as a new leaf. But it is there nonetheless. In the same way, God has put into our hearts a new life principle. It is a love for righteousness. And as it grows, it nudges old habits, old sins, until they drop. Over many years, we can see this governing principle in the changed life it produces. That is the grace of God training us to live godly lives, to be conformed to his image. And one day, that change will become complete upon Christ's return. Oh, our blessed hope, our blessed hope. Our blessed hope is glorification. First John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we shall see him as he is. May that be your hope this morning, seeing Christ and grace perfected. By way of application as well today, we're going to take communion as such an appropriate response, an acknowledgement of God's saving 
and sanctification in our lives. After that, we're going to sing two songs in response to the grace that we have just spoken about and celebrated. I have your attention. I know we're going to get ready in a second here. But I want to inform you, pastorally instruct you for a time of application and worship in conclusion. Remember what I said before, how it's so easy to talk generally about our sin? That it's a strategy of the flesh? It's also to talk, easy to talk very generally about the glory of God. But change is in the details, is it not? It's in the change in the details where we fix our eyes on aspects of who God is and his glory that he opens our eyes to see more. And we truly worship him.